Good morning. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Greg, how are you? Not too bad, Brett. Happy Tuesday to you. Indeed. I am uh, I'm craving potato chips, unfortunately. Or I guess, are Doritos technically potato chips, or would you call those a tortilla chip? They're a corn chip, I believe. But they, you never know. I've never really read the bag. I don't really want to know. I just know it's a bag of triangle-shaped deliciousness. Yeah, that's good enough for you me. You know, it's like Pringles. Do you really, really want to know what the Pringles are? No, just just enjoy them. You may have seen a story yesterday. The headline at globalnews.ca is PepsiCo CEO sparks Twitter furor by suggesting men and women eat Doritos differently. They want the the gist of this is they want to create a kind of Doritos that is more lady friendly because women don't like to crunch the chips in public and they don't like to lick their fingers, so they want to make one that's uh, not as noisy and messy, less and, dusty. And I found out about this because one of my female friends mm-hmm. <laughs> she sent me the link, followed by a text saying. Expletive, 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 expletive. And she later posted on social media, uh, just uh, on her Instagram story, just her shoveling Doritos into her face. (laughs) So this does not apply to her? No, not at all. It's ridiculous. Isn't that part of the fun of eating a potato chip? You know it's already bad, so why not have fun? You take the crunch away from the potato chip and you take away half, well, not half, but I I would say 25% of the satisfaction. But I think... You know, on the other side of this, I'm not certain PepsiCo. I mean, they've had some failed products for sure over the years. Jerry raises his eyebrows, you think? Uh, (laughs) But I don't think they're really in the business of launching things that they don't think have a chance to succeed. Now, maybe in this climate of the Me Too movement and Time's Up and everything, this timing of this is maybe not ideal. It's maybe not all that brilliant, but... I know Jackie eats potato chips a little bit differently than I do. I think to acknowledge or to not acknowledge the fact that we might consume and eat things slightly differently, that would be a little daft. I don't think it's, I don't, I I don't think so. In this case, if you're eating a potato chip, you already know that you're, you're shoveling something completely unhealthy into your face. And if you're doing it in public, what difference does it make if it's, if I don't, because I don't see how physically you remove the crunch from it. it, Then it's something else. Then it's no longer a potato chip. Like, is it soggy? I'm trying to figure out what the texture (laughs) of the chip would be. I think really what we're doing is we're trying, we want to taste some of these things. Yeah. So that we can do a taste test for ourselves. Uh, you know what? I, I get it. I get the. I get the concern or the uh, lack of appreciation for what they're doing here. But these big companies, uh, there might be something here. Well, look, I think- look at some of these snacks that have shown up over the last handful of years. Things that you never imagined people would eat, and they've become a little bit of a like rice cakes. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Really. Oh well, have hey, you ever tried one of these things? Some of the the rice cakes are uh, not too bad now. Now, but, but they had to start somewhere. Well, and I think then if you, but then don't call it Doritos. Call it something else. Okay. I think I think what's happening here, honestly, the undertone is they're probably just wanting to make sure that Doritos stays in the headline to maybe promote this new blaze flavor of Doritos that we saw launched in the Super Bowl. The commercial with Peter Dinklage coming out. Uh, Peter Dinklage, uh, who plays Tyrion in Game of Thrones, where he's rapping the Busta Rhymes song. Which was fantastic. Yeah. Yes. Very good. I'm like, he's really rapping. And then they show Busta Rhymes giving him the nod. And it's like, then they showed, uh, was it Morgan Freeman? Back to back with the Diet Sprite. Uh, I was uh, Mountain Dew Ice. Oh, Mountain Dew Ice. See, see, another case of they spend all that money and I just uh, pimped another <laughs> another product. And and so he's doing uh, Missy Elliot. Missy Elliot, right? And it's like, oh, okay, Dinklage was actually just lip syncing, but which was very good. Oh yeah, it was. I appreciate one of the, the one of the better uh, commercials. I think very entertaining, there. right? So you're you're suggesting that on the heels of this, they're maybe just trying to. Could it be a joke? Could it be a farce? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the reaction here, a couple of uh, a couple of tweets that this particular story has highlighted. Here's a woman named Dana who says, Lady Doritos is my stage name. 
Molly says, OMG, was Lady I supposed Marmalade? to... <laughs> Molly says, OMG, was I supposed to be embarrassed about the crunch of my Doritos this whole time? I thought it was just shame about my body and general repulsiveness. <laughs> Lady Doritos, the crunching sound you hear is the glass ceiling shattering. Yeah, and... Uh, and once Stacy says, my generation marched so future generations of women could enjoy Lady Doritos. <laughs> All right, I'm kind of being convinced to, to, to sway, to come on your side on this one. And listen, I realize, like, there is, of course, there is a time and a place to eat potato chips like a slob when you're at home in your sweatpants, you know, and maybe your sweatpants have an orange kind of stain on them just from... <laughs> Inch. That's where you just sort of wipe your hands off. Even after washing them, the, yeah. that orange tinge, it's like the <laughs> butt print on your coat. You just are not getting rid of that. Yeah. But, you know, it, and I, I, too, I too, like I, when I eat chips at work, because we often have old Dutch, which by the way, I, I, I like Doritos, but I think the old Dutch uh, taco versions there, I, I prefer those to the Doritos. But they do when, a great job. When we have the old Dutch chips in our newsroom, I have a tendency to eat most of the chips. So there, it is a challenge to do it, to inhale as many chips as I can without being a complete slob because I'm at work. So I get that, but I don't, I don't think that's exclusive to women. I think that's just exclusive. Or that, that's just something that people with who at least try to have good manners... Try to do, right? You don't want to be a complete gross pig while you're eating chips in front of your colleagues or friends or wherever you happen to be doing it on a park bench. I don't know. Doritos. Lady Doritos. 204-780-6868. Is this a real thing or are they just trying to stay in the headlines? And would you try them? Is there a need for such a thing as Lady Doritos? I think a lot of the guys, I think a lot of guys could could use the help on this front and i think you've highlighted that yeah in your last 40 seconds or so of exhibiting and describing to us how you eat potato chips in the newsroom just imagine the cookie monster but instead of chocolate chip cookies say like a big bag of cheetos 612 on 680 cjob still to come this morning we have more tickets to give away for the winnipeg symphony orchestra's charles chaplin's city lights why is so it charles and not charlie chaplin because he was the director so as an actor he's charlie chaplin but city lights as jerry explained to us yesterday behind the glass jerry explained because he's the director it's charles chaplin same individual just Tweaks his name a little bit. Yeah, it makes it sound fancier, I guess. What's the long form of your name? Formal form of Brett. It's just Brett. There's no formal. When I was a kid and I used to cry, my mom would call me Bretella. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Brett? I can tell you this. I would prefer if we had a high-speed train between, say, Winnipeg and Calgary, and I could put my car on the train, kind of like a ferry when you go from... Horseshoe Bay to Vancouver Island, yep. you know, have a couple beverages, non-alcoholic, of course, have a meal, and then end up in Calgary in four hours. Is this a pipe dream? I don't know. Let's talk about high-speed rail in Canada. Well, we have the space, we have the distance, and the ridership, yet no high-speed rail anywhere in Canada. Why is that? Well, let's find out. We'll ask our guest, who is now joining us live, the founder of High Speed Rail Canada. His name is Paul Langan, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Paul, good morning to you, sir. Morning, guys. Great to have you aboard, Paul. Thanks for taking yeah, some no time with us it. this morning. <laughs> Are, are there any corridors or any uh, major centers that would be ideal for being connected by high-speed rail in Canada? I know I just m mentioned Winnipeg and Calgary. That's very selfish, but uh, I know Calgary's on the list connecting another city. Yeah, I, I think the easiest one and, and the most practical one would be between, between Calgary and Edmonton. And if they did it now, they wouldn't have the problems and the costs of and 20 years later if they waited. To, a lot of people wait till it's too late, and then you have too much urban sprawl to, to make it happen. So, yeah, Calgary and Edmonton would be the first one, but uh, political will is always kind of the technicality there. And then uh, in Ontario here, it's, uh, it's getting a little tougher to do just because of that uh, sprawl. But um, between London and Toronto is what the government's talking about now, provincially at least. Hey, Paul, and can you give us an example of a spot on somewhere on planet Earth where this kind of high-speed rail is being used? 
Yeah. So, you know what, that's one of the biggest things is when I give like presentations is the people in Canada, because our pastoral system is so antiquated, you know, they think it's futuristic high speed rail. Right. So so I try to tell them that it's been around, you know, for a half a century. And then, you know, there's about 20 to 25 countries that have it. So that's probably my biggest stumbling block is people say, well, geez, you know, where where is it? Well, you can name any modern country and they have it. Unfortunately, in Canada and, and our partners to the U.S. there, we've decided to, um, you know, make a high-speed rail, a modern passenger rail, something that's not done. And is it just because the distances are so vast? Does it increase the, the cost of doing something like this? Or is it more the political will, Paul? Well, you know what? It, it goes back to uh, a time when we just decided to rip out all our rail lines and we decided to do massive highway building in, in North America in the 50s, whereas in, in other countries they said, well, we're still going to build highways, but we're not going to let go of our passenger rail system. We're going to keep that modern. So w- the biggest mistake we made was pretty simple, but it was tragic. We privatized our rail lines, and so the freight companies own them. So over in Europe and Asia, the government owns the rail line, so passenger rail has priority. And as soon as you took that away in Canada and in America and then freight rules the roost, then then that's what happens. You get all freight trains and passenger trains sit in the sidings. And you guys know that more than anybody out your way. I For work, I've traveled by train between uh, Winnipeg and Saskatoon. I mean, oh, my God, you know. So they it, it's just slow train coming. But not only that, you're, you know, you're sitting in the sidings, you're, you're late. They've moved the stations, another fundamental flaw that you guys face, uh, in, like in Saskatoon, not Winnipeg, but you moved your stations in the middle of nowhere. So I remember getting off Saskatoon, I think it was 2 in the morning, uh, outskirts of Saskatoon saying, in the winter, saying, what is going on? You know, But it's just indicative of passenger rail in Canada. So you mentioned that there are 25 countries or so that use oh, at least, yeah. uh, high-speed rail. What kind of speed are we talking about? Well, that's another uh, good question you're asking. So the definition, like 20, 15, 20 years ago, used to be 200 kilometers an hour, okay? That was high speed. But now, really, it's 300 to 350 is the low end of high speed in, in most modern countries. And you put that up to uh, via rail, uh, even in Ontario, they're lucky to go 160 for, you know, 10 or 15 kilometers in one little short section of track. To make it even more sad, um, just for fact, <laughs> we used to have a turbo. We used to have a turbo train in the in the late '60s uh, in Canada that went over 200 kilometers an hour. So basically, 60 years later, our trains go slower than they did then. Well, you know, when we had this conversation about Amtrak yesterday and the whole idea of, yeah. of, of, of VIA, can you tell us a little bit how VIA Rail operates? Is it arm length from the government? Is it Crown Corporation? And so w- really quickly, you get into this whole idea like we do about transit in Winnipeg, Paul, and this right. whole question of, well, should taxpayers be subsidizing every single ride? And I think that that's where a lot of people start tuning out is when they start hearing this idea of government, quote-unquote, subsidizing every rider. You know, we don't, we don't say that when they subsidize our sewers. We don't say that when they subsidize our police. They don't sub- say that when they subsidize our hospitals. They don't say that when they subsidize our hockey rinks. There's things you do for the social good of the community, and transit's one of them. Um, you know what? The PEI, PEI bridge there over in Confederation there, that bridge, we subsidize $44 million a year for the next 33 years, and we do it because that's something that people decided was for the best of society. We subsidize the roads massively. You know, the biggest part of your tax bill, at least in, in Ontario here, biggest part of my tax bill, number one is police, number two is transit, number three is roads. Well, you know, we want these things, right? So, but you're right. I mean, that's that people just don't get you do things for the social good of the community. Some things don't make a profit. Uh, 
And just one last point on that, because this happens when I'm on talk shows and people call in. Somebody from a small town uh, where they won't get high speed says, well, we're not going to pay for, you know, Edmonton or Toronto's high speed rail, you know. Well, you know what I like to say to them? Well, when you get ill and they fly you down to Winnipeg, they fly you down to Toronto for treatment. We're certainly glad that those doctors don't say, well, geez, you didn't pay for this hospital, right? Or when you're in your small community and they build this giant arena for you that does you could never afford, you know, we're sure glad that, you know, other taxpayers paid for that. So you do things for the community good. Paul, you bring up some excellent points. I think this conversation's far from over. Will you join us again sometime? <laughs> yeah, sorry for rambling there, guys. No, not at all. We're uh, It's yeah. unfortunately a fast-moving uh, uh, program in the morning, but we'd love to have you back and talk a little bit more about the future of rail travel in Canada and whether or not it will at some point include high-speed rail. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it. You have a great day. All right, you too. Paul Langan is the founder of High Speed Rail Canada. Macklin Gary joined in studio by TFJ, Tristan Field-Jones, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, and behind the glass, Jerry, always present. And Jerry, why don't we start with you talking and about... KK. Oh, yeah, KK's on the phone. Sorry, KK. <laughs> good morning, Kathy. All good. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, my friend. Mm-hmm. I, I almost forgot about you, but Brett would not let me. Uh we were speaking off air about this idea of long distance road travel, or we were talking high speed trains. And I would love to just park my car on a train and, you know, in four hours be in Calgary. I, and this, this technology is possible, but I digress. Uh, I've always wondered about people in Southern California, all over the United States that do these ultra long commutes every single day. And, Jerry, of course you have experience with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, when I first uh, got a radio gig in uh, Wingham, Ontario, I was still living in London, Ontario. So uh, I had a house to sell and whatever before I could buy a house in Wingham. I commuted an hour and a half each way uh, to work uh, for about a year. There's only oh. one word for that. That's yuck. Yep. <laughs> it was actually it was actually a very relaxing really? drive. Really? It was country roads. It was beautiful. What about in the winter? Uh, in the winter, I, I occasionally got snowed in in Wingham and had would have to stay, but uh, it wasn't that bad. I mean, the roads were always plowed. Did you set up a hammock in the basement of the radio station, or? Uh, well, there there was a there was a cot in the radio station as well as about three or four couches because it happened a lot where people would have to stay. Uh, but wow. uh, I also I also had family in Wingham, surprisingly. Oh, good. Yeah. So how would you stay awake? Because surely you must have nodded off here or there. Yeah. Uh, well, graphic audio books. Uh, <laughs> What do you mean by graphic? Graphic audio. A movie in your mind. Graphic audiobooks are basically, it's like uh, they, they take a comic book and they make it into like uh, one of those old radio shows. Okay, when well, I heard graphic I was thinking explicit and like, yeah, okay, <laughs> X rated stuff. Oh, man. Now you're boring. Mind gutter, hello? <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's, that is no. boring. KK, can you spice this conversation up a little bit? Uh, like, are, have you got some experience? I mean, obviously, growing up in Brandon, coming to the big city, a two hour drive doesn't sound like a lot, uh, but sometimes it's a challenge to stay awake on the way from Brandon to Winnipeg or vice versa, because uh, the, uh, shall we say, the visuals aren't necessarily all that uh, intoxicating. Well, no, true. And uh, so music is what would always keep me awake. And anytime I would find myself nodding off just a little, it's amazing what a little Ronnie James Dio, Judas Priest, Van Halen can do for you uh, on a road trip. I couldn't agree more. You're such a banger, KK. Good for you. Uh, you know, I uh, I tried the uh, I tried the, the loud music, and I just can't seem to. Sometimes it, I just am too tired. I remember driving back from Oak Island in Western Manitoba near Verdon this summer, which is about a three and a half hour drive. I had to pull a car over a couple of times because I was in danger of driving me and my friend Mike off the road and into the ditch. Because I was just like, especially those long drives on in the prairies where it's just flat and there's nothing. Uh, so I don't. The music 
didn't really work for me. I might have to try the audiobooks, and I'd like to learn more about this graphic audiobook thing that Behind the Glass Jerry's talking about. Well, Tim says, one of our loyal listeners, and we know he drives about six, seven, eight hours every single day, does Tim. Death Stalker is a great graphic audiobook. Uh, he says eating sunflower seeds is the only way to go to keep awake. That's Jeff, a good idea. I know you do lots of long road trips, just about one every year, right? Uh, I, I try to, yeah, and... The worst I ever had with almost falling asleep was sort of, I was in a situation like Jerry where I was still living in Altona, but on the weekends working at a radio station in Winnipeg, and my shift was midnight till 8.30, and then I'd have to drive back to Altona, and uh, and that was all the windows down, and just the music cranked as loud as you can, and there were a few times I couldn't remember to drive. Yes. Wow, really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Kelly Moore? Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> I don't do that anymore. Uh, yeah, we uh, often uh, make the trek from uh, Winnipeg to BC to visit family in the summertime. And so I, I don't know. I, I've just, I get behind the wheel and I can drive. I don't know what it is, but I just uh, kind of go along. And usually there are people sleeping in the car, so I can't have graphic headbanging music uh, accompanying me. But I, I, I don't know. I, I look for different uh, landmarks. I uh, also play the license plate game where we try to collect as many United States and Canadian license plates as we possibly can over the course of the trip. That's a good, that's a good game. It's my most embarrassing moment. I wasn't driving, but I was in the parking lot of the Calgary Zoo when I found Pennsylvania, much to the chagrin of my then teenage daughters. Uh-oh, what happened? I chased the car to find out which license plate or which state it was. <laughs> oh, no. It was, it was one you didn't recognize, and you knew that you could add it to your list. My girls just crawled in the van, and he's not with us. He's <laughs> our chaperone. That's funny. Now, now you say you collected these uh, license plates. Did you actually get out and, and grab them? <laughs> grab my screwdriver? No, no, no. We, we write them down. Come uh, on, Jerry. Well, now you can take pictures of them. It's nice. Hey, here's uh, one other listener says, here's my tip to stay awake on long trips, to which I've traveled across North America. Sunflower seeds, again, you don't fill up uh, like eating chips, and you're always doing something, putting in your mouth, throwing them out the window and spitting them in a cup. Uh, But there comes a breaking point, just pull over, keep us all safe. And somebody else said in the wintertime they take a cup of snow and wash their face with it and dump it down the back wow. of their jackets. So that is graphic. I'll do it. TFJ? Uh, I, uh, last year, I think I did almost a dozen day trips to the White Shell or to Kenora and those sorts of places. So you know, round trip, you're looking at three, four hours of driving in total, and oftentimes I'll have friends with, with me. So uh, one of the things that I always keep in the back of my mind is if I even think of dozing off, there are two or three other people in the car with you that you are responsible for, that on its own is enough to keep me awake and alert. And the fact that if you drive the Trans-Canada west of uh, the White Shell, especially if you're heading back towards Winnipeg, there are so many bumps in that road, and they're consistent, right? (laughs) There are so many bumps in that road where it would be very difficult. Like, the moment you start nodding off, like half a second later, bump, 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 bump. They build in those rumble strips, right, near the the shoulder. You don't need those on that section of the Trans-Canada. No, not at all. It's all rumble strips. And that was the section apparently they they redid fairly recently so i don't know there some but. vehicles now too i think will will do that on their own right yes uh, the mine has a, a silverado i think and he, he showed me he sort of veered out of the lane and i think his seat shook or i can't remember what it, how it alerted him isn't there some kind of a beeping tour or something like that lane departure yeah. technology <laughs> yeah yeah that will uh do something funny i'm wondering if mine does that probably uh, we'll find out Nobody likes getting a ticket of any kind. Well, I like getting tickets to Jets games and Bomber games and to the WSO. We'll give away some tickets to the WSO. Those are tickets you like. Mm-hmm. Parking tickets, not so much. And the city of Winnipeg is owed almost $7 million in parking ticket fines. To talk about this, we're joined now by Colin Stewart with the Winnipeg Parking Authority. Colin, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, gentlemen. So $7 million, that's not chump change, especially when you're talking about the overall budget of the city of Winnipeg. How how high has it been in the past, Colin, is, or is it fairly steady that you, have that you have that $7 million in the AR section? 
So this year we've got a bit of a bubble. It's normally around four million. This year we've got about three million. If you remember, uh, about a year and a half ago, we had an issue with parking tickets and the summer convictions court over at the province. So all those tickets, um, it's much, much harder for the city to collect. We can't force people to pay those old tickets. So those are uh, in the process of being written off as they reach a certain age and the largest bubble hits this year. So the normal and by now we're down to around about $4 million. And that's generally an average. It does tend to spike a bit in the winter just because we do issue more tickets in the winter on snow routes. Now, Colin, you use the words written off. Do you actually write off the tickets and then what happens to those outstanding fines? I don't suppose they go into the vapor somewhere. They they do actually. It's it's like a business, so it's written off as a bad debt. It's uncollectible. You know, in many cases, in some cases, you know, it's one ticket that's ten years old for sixty dollars. The cost to collect that sixty dollars would be far more than the city would recover. Or you know, there's cases where people have passed away. We're not going to go after the estate. You know, ten years later, that's just not on. What about, uh, or what would it take for you to go after somebody? And because I know the city has the authority to to go so far as to tr- to seizing someone's car and putting that up for auction, but that's a fairly and it's actually the city says this is a last resort kind of situation. It is indeed. So in 2017, we only leaned 805 vehicles. Now you go, wait a minute, 800 cars? That sounds like a lot. But we write about 160,000 tickets on average every year. And about 85% of those tickets are to individuals. Most people only get one ticket. So in any given year, we're writing tickets to around 135,000 vehicles. So when you look at, first you think 800 is a lot, but when you look at it in the scope of 135,000 vehicles, and the City of Winnipeg's discount program, and this is for all bylaw offenses under the Municipal Bylaw Enforcement Act. It's not just parking anymore. Um, You do get a discount if you pay early. And depending on the ticket, we see between 50 to 60 percent of those tickets issued get paid within that first two-week period. Now, I know people have had issues with the, with the different meters uh, malfunctioning and whatnot. Uh, while we've got you on here, Colin, maybe give some advice to people who encounter a meter that isn't working properly and maybe get ticketed anyway. Is there, is there a simple way to dispute these things without getting to court, or has that become more convoluted so- over the last year or so? It's actually become simpler. Um, Now, I get this question every year in the winter, um, but the meters don't feel cold. Um, They only stop working at about minus 37, and that's because the screen won't form a message to the customer. Um, And that's minus 37 without the wind chill. So we don't actually get that really freaking cold that often. Um, It just feels like it with the wind. Um, But if you do get a ticket and you feel it was issued in error, um, one of the most common ones we see is you've, you've bought a receipt, you've put it on your dash, and of course when you close your door, the, the, that little breeze blows it onto the floor, for example. So our officer comes along, they can't see your receipt, they don't know you've paid. Um, what you do is you come down to 495 Portage uh, and appear before a screening officer. You can also do it online through the City of Winnipeg's website. Um, and then the screening officer reviews the evidence and they have the option to uh, reduce that penalty in amount, including all the way down to a warning if they feel it's appropriate. Or in certain circumstances, they can cancel that ticket. Uh, and then if you don't agree with the screening officer, you can then go before a provincially appointed adjudicator who is uh, totally independent. Uh, however, there is a $25 fee for that. Um, we ran the numbers last year, and the average wait time for appearing before a screening officer now is about 20 minutes. I don't know that you could get through the line to be seen at first appearance at Provincial Court in 20 minutes. Colin, we thank you very much for your time. Unfortunately, we are out of it, but we very much appreciate it, and we'll have you back sometime, okay? All right. Thanks, gentlemen. Colin Stewart is with the Winnipeg Parking Authority. It's time for breakfast with the Bombers. As mentioned, Paul Lapolis, offensive coordinator of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, joins us now. And uh, thanks for taking some time with us this morning, Paul. Happy uh, post-Super Bowl. Y'all recuperated from Sunday? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, 
yeah, it was, it was quite a game. It was a lot of fun. The coordinators weren't weren't real happy watching that game. <laughs> but I bet you the offensive coordinators were were uh, were thrilled to, to see what those two offenses managed to do. And we're going to start by asking you about this play. Well, they called it the Philly Special, and it looked a little, very familiar to a lot of Blue Bomber fans. We're going to go back in time to October eighth, twenty sixteen at. IGF. Here's Bob Irving. Second and three at the BC four. Nichols changing the play now. No, it's a direct snap to Harris and a throw to Nichols. Touchdown. Rory Kohler passes to Nichols for a touchdown. So what do you guys call that play, Paul? Uh, we call it Clemson because we uh, we kind of saw Clemson run it years ago, and when we put it in, we just kind of called it Clemson. Well, they call it the Philly Special in Philadelphia. Uh, is this going to be the, the new norm, or do you figure, like, is there anybody in Philly that would have been watching Blue Bomber tape on this, or were they watching the Clemson tape? Uh, where, where do you think they dug this up? Yeah, you know, no, it was really funny on Twitter. People saying, hey, everybody stole your play, the Bombers and everything, the Bombers play. I mean, everybody steals from everybody. Like, that that play I saw, Clemson run against Georgia Tech in, like, 2013, and I remember drawing. You know, sometimes if I'm sitting at home and I see something on a bowl game, I'll actually draw it up and save it for, you know, a later date. And uh, saw that happen, and then – a couple years later, the year we put it in, in 2016, the year before the Bisons ran it, I believe, to go to the Vanier Cup uh, to, to win their championship. Uh, so, you know, there's just less eyes on the Bisons. And then we ran it in 16. Uh, Harvard ran it in 16. Uh, somebody else ran it. Maybe Penn ran it. And then uh, after we ran it, uh, I believe Laval ran it in, in one of their big playoff games <laughs> to get uh, to move on to the finals because they had seen us run it. Uh, the Bears ran it. The Detroit Lions ran it this past year. So it just kind of, you know, people see it working, and then they go, oh, that's kind of neat. Let's try to get that in, and it's kind of an easy play to run. And so uh, really good misdirection on them. And, and, and it's hats off to the coaching staff to say not the conservative thing of kicking a field goal they say, hey, we got to outscore the Patriots. So that was a that was a great call by them. Now, Paul, when you run a play like that, is there a risk of uh, of being soundly embarrassed by the defense of being shut down immediately in, in the event that it's uh, something they can see coming? Well, you know, like again, like you can't be scared, and and we always we always have a group of these plays and a package of these type of plays that we try to run, and and we may run more than other teams, but. You know, like, like I, I know last year we we had a game. We ran that exact same play uh, last year against Edmonton. Uh, we had a breakdown in protection, so we missed a block on the inside, and we basically took a sack on it. Now, we had moved the ball at will. This is the first drive of the game. We moved right down the field. So I get a good feeling we're going to move the ball. So, I, uh, you know, I can take a chance on a play. And it was really funny. It didn't work, and everyone kind of – Oh, you know, all the all the media geniuses said, oh, that's a terrible decision. Why would you call that when you're moving the ball so well? Oh, you don't need that play right there. Well, you know, like we want to be aggressive. So, you know, th- when you're moving the ball fine, those are the times you pull those out. And you're trying to keep people off balance. So it, when it, you just know when it works, everyone likes it. When it doesn't, you know, they're going to they're gonna throw whiskey bottles from the top deck. Uh, pa- Paul Apolise is the offensive coordinator of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. He joins us on Breakfast with the Bombers. And, uh, Paul, that whole idea of that sort of being your identity, of being aggressive and, you know, doing things that have a different sort of wrinkle in it, this continuity question, the whole idea that you've had a lot of the same players, certainly the offensive line and quarterback now and Andrew Harris and a group of receivers that is starting to work very well together, that cohesion. Does that allow you to build on that, not only game to game, but now talking about consecutive to, to kind of a third season now with more or less the same group? Does it allow you to get even more creative next season? You know, I, I think it allows us to refine more because, you know, the hard part when you're at a place for a year or two, you don't really you don't get a, a big package of opportunities to study and run your plays like like we're in the office uh, for a couple hours today and yesterday and, and, and a couple of the coaches. And we're watching, you know, what we do is we, we call them cut-ups. So you take whatever, what we call our Colts football play that we ran 25 times last year, 
we look at the stats and then we watch all 25 clips and we kind of evaluate why it was successful or why it wasn't. And then you can make determinations. Well, is this one of our best things? I mean, do we need to call this once a game or twice a game? So I, I think we just have knowledge of one Matt, what he does well, uh, Andrew and the other players. And so now you can kind of go, this is what we're best at. Let's do more of this and try to disguise how we're running the things we're really good at. Uh, I think that's what consistency breeds. And we always talk about consistency breeds execution and execution should breed success. How about your reunification with Darian Durant and his role that he'll play this year? Uh, that, that's got to be very comforting, I think, for a lot of fans. Uh, how about for you as offensive coordinator to have a player like uh, Darian in camp? Yeah, you know, I spoke to Darian yesterday and trying to get him up on the on the playbook. We, we've got it up online in the cloud so he can start, you know, he... You know, he can basically start learning our training camp installations because we, uh, he can, you know, we have videos of our installations so he can listen to those already and start getting acclimated with our, you know, we're together, but it was a long time ago. So our terminology has, has stopped. Oh, I think so we have you. lost. Oh, you're back. Paul, yeah, please. You're still yeah, here. So, yeah, our terminology. Uh, no, you know what? I'm, I I think we're going to have to throw in the towel on that one. Yeah, the technological gods are saying, guys, you're already going long in this segment. <laughs> so uh, they're playing in and creeping in here. Paul Lapolis, thanks for your time this morning. We look forward to uh, watching what happens with uh, next week as uh, free agency becomes a reality in the Canadian Football League. Breakfast with the Bombers here on 680 CJOB. It's brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca. A better place for you. By the way, Super Bowl ratings were down this year they had uh, 103 Point four million viewers. That's down more than that's seven all? million. Yeah, it's still a ton, but it's down seven million from last year, and it's the smallest audience since two thousand nine. But this is us at twenty seven million viewers, which is very impressive for the post Super Bowl uh, big. You know that that's uh, sort of the coveted spot. Get the the Super Bowl lead in. So NBC really capitalized on having the Super Bowl and had it tie in, and good for this is us. Great song like this could help you on the drive, yeah. It's a great driving song. <laughs> this is the kind of this is a speeding ticket song. You know Don't I, speed, but this is it. If I were to get a speeding ticket, it's to a song like Machine Head by Bush or Bush X, if Bush you prefer. X, I think when they release this one, yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry, we are uh, headbangers at heart, and we know a lot of you are as well. But Harry Potter heads rejoice because it sounds as though not only is Harry Potter one of the best books and series of books to read, but Harry Potter might make the ideal travel mate, Brett McGarry. Yeah, we were having coffee and talking about this earlier at 645. What do you do to stay awake on a long road trip if you're getting bored? Well, recent Canadian research suggests listening to a Harry Potter audiobook can improve focus on long and boring drives. Our guest this morning to talk about this is Lana Trick, who is a psychology professor at the University of Guelph, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Lana, good morning to you. Good morning. The uh, terminology, oh, we're well, thank you. And this has uh, stimulated <laughs> a lot of conversation for us and some of the, maybe the bad habits we've had over the years. Uh, the consensus here seems to be that sunflower seeds uh, do a, a pretty good trick and a very good job of helping keep some of us awake. But what is this empty brains bad for focus? So tie this back yeah. into this whole idea of audiobooks uh, being the ideal companion, perhaps while you're doing a long road trip. Yeah, well, what we're looking for was something that keeps your mind occupied um, a little bit more. Um, well, actually, just listening to music doesn't seem to be as useful as actually uh, having something to think about. But you don't want to have something so demanding that it basically interferes. And what we used is we used uh, the book Harry Potter, uh, not because it was the only book that would work, but actually just as an example of the book. We, we had to start somewhere. And we found that it actually benefited performance on simple drives. So when we mean simple drives, you know, the sort of routine drive you do every day, not much traffic, not much complication. And we found that it improved performance. 
So would would something like, for example, a long drive along the Trans Canada in the prairies, where there's oh, often yeah. a whole lot of that's nothing? What I was, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, actually, I'm from Alberta originally, and you know, you can have long straight stretches of road where there's not much going on. And unfortunately, what happens is um, the tendency is to either uh, fall asleep, which is really dangerous, or actually a mind wander, which can be as dangerous as well. So you start sort of brooding on things that you you know think that happened or actually just daydream and that can be interfering as well whereas actually uh, listening to an audiobook might be better in that it sort of keeps you uh, alerted but at the same time it's not as uh, demanding as cell phone conversations or um, texting texting oh my gosh is really dangerous so so you know when you're on those those drives that uh, can be less than demanding in terms of uh, mm-hmm. navigation you're on a straight line what have you there is a happy medium then is what you're saying Lana in yeah. terms of uh, the yeah. music just isn't quite stimulating enough and you don't want to be going to something that borders on distraction yeah, exactly. So we're trying to find a nice middle point. And um, we uh, we tested young young adults. Um, so um, actually, I did this project with Robert Noisielski, a graduate student of mine. And we, he originally was talking about his experiences driving um, as a professional driver. And he was, well, he was listening to Plato. So, But we thought that perhaps Plato wouldn't be as appealing to the first-year students that we were testing. So we <laughs> took another book. <laughs> But actually, it's possible. There's lots of different books that could benefit. We haven't. Uh, there could be some that are more beneficial than others. We just started with one book because we thought this would be an engaging book. Uh, 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 young adults of that age actually grew up with Harry Potter, so. No, I realize this isn't the same thing, but I'm wondering if there is a similarity here, and that's surgeons. Often uh, surgeons will, uh, at least you see it in the movies, I don't know if they do this in real life, but Mm -hmm. you see them turn on music as they go into surgery, and uh, I've heard that that's actually a good distraction. Well, it can uh, actually also relax you in the case of music. It depends on what kind of music you have. You could have energizing music or relaxing music, but actually sometimes it's nice to have, if you have something very demanding to do, it's something uh, to uh, help you relax and actually focus better. So clearly so, our... So there's a- yeah, so there's different. There's certainly a, a continuum, and basically, what you want to do is aim towards the middle, because actually, too little stimulation is bad, and too much stimulation is bad. And what you're trying to do is get that happy medium. Well, clearly, our long distance drives and our long commutes are only getting longer. So this is going to be an issue yeah. up for conversation for some time now. Lana, it looks as though yeah. you've uh, created quite a expertise for yourself. Well. Ugh. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lana Trick, thank you so much for joining us. Lana is a psychology professor at the University of Guelph. And this is really fascinating stuff. Uh, the, the suggestion that listening to audiobooks on long, boring drives can help keep you stimulated so that you avoid falling asleep. B-Rad has texted us here to say, I drove to Edmonton and back. I listened to comedy albums, 14 hours flew by, and a friend of mine, actually, he used to drive back and forth to uh, Grand Forks sometimes. He would listen to movies. He would listen to, I don't know where he downloaded download the audio tracks for these films, but he would listen. He had CDs full of movies, so... We didn't get around to it this morning, and uh, Jeff Braun, I'm going to out, it, out him here, he said he used to record episodes of Seinfeld onto cassette and listen to them on some of his long drives and would actually, by the time all was said and done, he had memorized the entire script, all the dialogue for all the characters. Yeah, he is an encyclopedia. He's, I think where once there was math in his brain, now it's just Seinfeld <laughs> quotes. I mean, and that's more useful information anyway. Of course it, it is. <laughs> One, two, three... Three things. three things with Tristan Field Jones, TFJ. He's dynamite. Today it's three things about the Trappist One star system. What's the Trappist One star system? Edumacate us. I will edumacate you. Uh, so this is a, one of those stories that I think has sadly gone under the radar. I think a lot of these uh, astronomy-related stories don't get the attention they deserve. So I'm going to shed a little bit of light on this. First of all, this may sound vaguely familiar, the Trappist One star system. It was initially discovered in 2015, and about a year ago, astronomers announced that seven planets had been confirmed, three of which are in that system's habitable zone. Uh, the planets orbit so tightly together 
together, they would all fit within Mercury's orbit for a comparison. Now, you would think this would make it hostile to life, but the star is about the size of Jupiter and is considered ultra cool at only 2,200 degrees Celsius. Oh. Yeah. Say that again? Ultra cool at 2,200 degrees Celsius. That's plus? Plus. Okay. So wow. Ultra cool. Well, so this system is 40 light years away from Earth, which means it takes light basically 40 years to get there. And the speed of light is 300,000 kilometers per second. Mm -hmm. So if you, we were to travel there using current technology, it would take over 700,000 years. Okay. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, I mean, you know, invent a way to put us to sleep for that length of time and we're good to go. Right on. So it is a distance away. Why is it in the news? Well, it is a prime candidate for life outside the solar system, partly because of the planets and the fact that three of them are in the habitable zone uh, and the characteristics of the star, too. So scientists announced yesterday there's even more evidence that some of these worlds could be habitable. So data taken from several of the space telescopes, including Hubble and Kepler, indicate these planets are rocky and terrestrial like Earth and Mars. Uh, most importantly, water is likely to exist in some form on all seven planets. So when are we going? Like, let's go. Back up. In 700,000 years, Greg. That's yeah, no problem. Well, so uh, there could be, in fact, 250 times more H2O in that system than on Earth. It was also revealed that the third and fourth planets receive about the same energy from their star as Earth gets from the sun. And it appears that at least one of them may have a liquid water ocean. Additionally, How can they tell that? Well, and, and they use this based off of data obtained from, and, and it's computer modeling, and it's data from these really sensitive space telescopes. They use infrared light, and they use all sorts of things. I don't even fully understand the concept myself, but basically lots of science, really. <laughs> because science. Because science, exactly. Yeah, science. Uh, and, and as if all that evidence wasn't enough, there's mm. also, they're also suggesting that these uh, planets do not contain hydrogen or helium in their atmosphere which is similar to what gas giants have, which is another indication that they may be habitable. They may have, similar to our atmosphere, uh, nitrogen-oxygen mix. So this is, and, and, and this is about all we can find out about it at this point because we simply don't have the technology to find out more yet. But uh, a lot of this comes from, again, those like Hubble's been around since 1990. Kepler has been around for almost a decade. So that's even by today's standards, that's still relatively outdated technology sure. when you're planet hunting. Uh, but we're hoping that uh, we could get some better findings by next year. There's a new space telescope being launched called the James Webb Space Telescope. It's being worked on by NASA, by the Canadian Space Agency, and by the European Space Agency. And just for a comparison there, uh, the Hubble has a single mirror on it that it uses for all sorts of things from measurements to photographs to whatever it may be. It's about eight feet wide. Well, okay. the, the James Webb telescope has 18 mirrors that are over 20 feet wide. Each? Fancy. Uh, in or total, combined. In total. And combined, it's over 20. So basically, if you were to put this uh, next to, say, our even our studios here, mm -hmm. the James Webb Telescope would be taller than our, the building we're in right now. It's yeah. massive. Sounds fascinating. And so the reason why this is so important is that this is, without a doubt, the best candidate for life outside of our solar system. Some of the stuff still has to be confirmed. And again, we're you're kind of using the outer limits of the technology we have today. But ultimately, if we are going to find life outside the solar system, this is, without a doubt, the best candidate. It's kind of like being Thurston Howell, though, and being on Gilligan's Island with all his millions of dollars. It really doesn't matter. You can't do anything. The money doesn't mean anything. You can't get there. It doesn't help you in any way. Is, do we just want to know? Well, here, here's the thing, and this is one of the most frequent criticisms of space research and that sort of stuff. We say we've got so many issues on Earth that we need to solve. Why don't we fix all that first and then go to space? Well, I, I think a rebuttal to that would be I do not foresee a, a, a human civilization where space travel and colonization of other planets isn't part of our future. The reason this matters is because it is part of our future, in my opinion, and I think that it may take the discovery of life somewhere else to kickstart some research into uh, into uh, uh, some sort of vehicle that could get us there. And then we can go there and uh, they'll ruin think it. we're and they, yeah, they'll ruin <laughs> it, or they'll think that we're picking a fight, and uh, before you know it, it's uh, attack of the aliens, and uh, down we go. Uh, 
You stay on my side of the tracks. <laughs> I'll stay on mine. Yeah, okay. okay. Well, That's you mentioned the word "the outer limits" in there, and I, I immediately think of science fiction. And yeah. I've watched too many movies, Tristan. It's all very fascinating. Shocking headline of the year, right there. Thank you very much, Tristan Field Jones. Greg Mackling and Brett McGarry and Brett. Lots of iconic photos throughout history. Uh, that moment in time, you know how they say a picture's worth a thousand words? I think it's more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably thousands of pictures being taken every single second on the planet now. Things have changed. Our exposure to pictures and our availability for those f- frozen images in time has certainly uh, become a bigger part of who we are. So to have a display or to have something that that's honoring specific moments in time in Canadian history is... Uh, I think pretty special because photos, think about how many times when you were a kid you used to get your picture taken in a year. Yeah. Uh, maybe three or four. Yep. Right? School pictures, Christmas time, and maybe on your birthday, and uh, when you had that family reunion in Grand Prairie or something, everybody got together for a photo. So uh, the number of photos that we have taken every day is probably more than we used to get them you know, taken in a year sometimes. And I'm thinking about one moment in particular September of 1972, when Paul Henderson scored that game-winning goal against the Russians in the Summit Series, or the Soviets at the time. And my grandpa used to have a hockey card with it that was on this little device that if you press the button, you actually got Foster Hewitt's call of that goal. And I think for a lot of people, that's one moment in time that will never, ever diminish or escape their memory. And the exhibits that we're talking about here... It's called Snapshots of Canada, and it opens at the Manitoba Museum tomorrow, and it runs until April 2nd. So to talk about this, we are joined live by Mark Reed of Canada's History Society. He joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Mark, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So Snapshots of Canada, as Greg referenced, Paul Henderson scoring the winning goal in the 1972 Summit Series, just one iconic moment of Canadian history captured in a snapshot, the kind of thing that you'll have on display for the next two months at the Manitoba Museum. Yeah, uh, we're really excited about it. Uh, You know, it's a lot of work behind the scenes with both our History Society and with the Canadian Museum of History, who we partnered with uh, put this together and uh yeah no we're excited for people to come out and take a look at these images from the past and you know hopefully they'll spark a few conversations about the present and the future as well so this whole idea of you know we were just chit-chatting before we brought you on and i'm sure you heard, heard it mark this whole idea of how many pictures are being taken now uh, versus in the past which makes these moments in time so much more iconic because they're so very very rare Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I was laughing when you guys were talking about your childhood because I grew up in Nova Scotia the same way. My mom had an old phone, or sorry, an old camera with 12 shots on it. And every time we take and we take a picture, she'd say, no, I need to save it for Christmas. And, uh, you know, so we would uh, we would only get these handful of shots. And then nowadays, people are just taking them left, right, and center. But the, the big difference is no one's actually printing them off, and no one's actually putting them in albums and, and, and cherishing them. And so we really think it's important to be able to show these snapshots from the past because really they're they're capturing these moments and times where in, in sometimes it was a moment of joy and other times it was a moment of, of sorrow, actually national sorrow. Um, but they're each a reflection of who we are as a people. And I think it's important for us to, to look back and remember and, and, and really, you know, get insight into the lives of the Canadians who came before us. Mark, we just have some breaking sports news coming in to 680 CJOB. Greg? The Winnipeg Blue Bombers have re-signed outside linebacker Mo Leggett to a one-year deal. Leggett was having an all-star season last year with 50 defensive tackles, three sacks, three interceptions, and a spectacular touchdown on special teams, and three forced fumbles before suffering a torn Achilles tendon in a mid-October game versus the BC Lions. This is a piece of news lots of Blue Bomber fans have been waiting for. Mo Leggett re-signing with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. By the way, CFL Free Agency begins a week from today at 11 a.m. Winnipeg time. You can cross Maurice Leggett's name off the list of players who 
are available. We are talking right now about Snapshots of Canada. This is an exhibit that opens at the Manitoba Museum tomorrow, and it runs until April 2nd. Our guest is Mark Reed with Canada's History Society. And Mark, how has this exhibit been met by audiences across the country? Because it's not something brand new. This is a traveling exhibit, right, that debuted, uh, was it last spring? Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, it, it was uh, debuted uh, in Ottawa at the Canadian Museum of History. You know, um, there's two different versions of it. There's an outdoor version, and then there's an indoor version, which is debuting. This is the first debut of the indoor version, which has twice as many photos as the outdoor version did. Um, and we also have a version that's going around the world, actually, at diplomatic missions. Um, um, various uh, various uh, ambassadors and, and whatnot are putting them at their missions that um, the rest of the world can see how we see ourselves. And, you know, I think it's being received very well. But, uh, you know, again, it's... Um, it's not all rah-rah. It's not all because, of course, as we know, history is with warts and all. And so, you know, um, I mean, we're based here in Winnipeg. And, uh, you know, for instance, one of the photos that has a Winnipeg connection is Louis Riel. And so the photo that we chose is actually Louis Riel in 1885 in July. He's been captured and he's standing up in this tiny little courtroom. And he's basically defending himself and defending Manitoba while all these stone-faced jurors and this judge you know, stare him down and call him a traitor to his country. And so, you know, one of the thing about our, uh, things about our exhibit, I think, is that every person from every region of the country can see their region reflected and often see themselves reflected or their ancestors, uh, their grandparents, their great-grandparents reflected in these photos. And so, you know, and some of them are quite poignant and, uh, you know, and, and, and tragic, like the Terry Fox um, photo, which is one of my favorites. You know, I grew up in the uh, 70s and 80s, and Terry was my hero. And when he died, I remember being in school, and like people were, uh, you know, tears streaming down the faces of the kids. And so, you know, this photo of him in silhouette running at dawn, just at, before even the sun gets up, um, you know, really for a certain generation, you know, it, it pulls the heartstrings, and it kind of reminds you what's important in life. And, uh, you know, the value of sacrifice. Yeah, the pictures are powerful. The stories attached to them even more. So, Mark, thank you for sharing this with us. We look forward to seeing this at the Manitoba Museum through April 21st. Uh, Thank you, Mark Reed. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, Mark Reed is with Canada's History Society talking about an exhibit, Snapshots of Canada, opening tomorrow, and it runs until April 2nd at the Manitoba Museum. And there will be some local connections as well. For example, the Winnipeg General Strike will be featured, as well as the trial of Métis leader Louis Riel. So again, Manitoba Museum, and you can get more information on their website. We're just looking at... uh, the morning show on Global TV, and uh, they're eating Doritos right now. <laughs> Carolyn looks decidedly uncomfortable with the dust, with the nacho dust on her fingers. I don't know. She's holding out her fingers right now. Yeah, I don't know. Is she gonna? Is she gonna let Jeff's licking the dust off his fingers? I don't know. This all has to do with Doritos announcing a little bit of a Twitter kerfuffle yesterday over the announcement that they they might be feminizing Doritos somewhat to make them less crunchy and less dusty so that women will consume more of their product. Well, maybe we'll ask our guest uh, just very briefly before we move on to what, we're, what we brought you to talk about. I know we're ambushing you with this, Dara Halleck, but just very quickly, uh, do you like Doritos? I love Doritos. Do you yes. Like, and do you, would you change anything about them? I would not change anything about them. Okay. No. No. Yeah. no that's fair enough. And to be fair, licking your fingers in public is—I know it's gross. It's all you know. I use a napkin too, but I wouldn't want to change that in private. Anyway, um, Dara Halleck is one of our guests. Brian Young is the other one. They are here from the Breaking Barriers Summit, and we met these two uh, young people last year. Uh, they introduced us to the first annual Breaking Barriers Summit, and I guess it was a success because here we go with the second annual conference. <laughs> yeah. So welcome back. So I guess, uh, Dara, let's start with you. Sure. The Breaking Barriers Summit, for those who are not familiar with this, what is it? So it is a it's a conference, essentially, where we are bringing together all of the students from all of the major academic institutions here in Manitoba. Um, and really, it's it's we're going to get together in the same room and talk about a lot of the challenges that students face with regards to their mental health and some of the barriers that we find on our institutions. And what can we do about that? What solutions can we come up with? And how can we go about advocating at our institutions 
for, um, you know, solving these problems and trying to um, break those barriers, I guess. Brian, <laughs> is there a shortage of of resources for those on campus, whether it's at Red River or UW or U of M? Or is, does this just come out of uh, increased consciousness uh, about issues and willingness to, to talk about them? I think a little bit of both. I think um, there's definitely more work that, <clears throat> excuse me, that we need to do to increase um, access to resources for students or to increase the knowledge for students that that resources are available. I think a lot of the times the resources are there, but it's it's hard for students to know where to go or or how to access them properly. The second piece is that there's so much awareness being built right now in, in our society around mental health. Um, it's a hot topic. Um, students know about mental health. They want to talk about it. Um, so why not like why not come together into one room and talk about what's working, what's not working at our institutions, and <clears throat> is there an opportunity to learn from each other? You know, can we learn from one another and and really change the landscape here in Manitoba around mental health? So last year's summit was held at both the U of M and the U of W. Correct. Yes. And how many people attended? Approximately. We had about um, 80 people, I think, in total over the two days, which yeah. was awesome. We had a lot of community partners come out, students from multiple institutions. Um, and uh, yeah, we had a great we had a great day. We started conversations. We broke barriers. Um, hence why we're coming back this year. So yeah. and it's going to be bigger and better this year, I think. Dara, was there something that stood out? In terms of maybe barriers that you broke down or a conversation that you had last year during the summit that you went, yeah, we need to talk more about this. We didn't realize this might become a big topic. Anything that surprised you, I oh guess, boy. in, yeah. a, in <laughs> a long way around of asking you that. Yeah, there was, well, there was a lot that came out of, uh, especially the last piece of the day, our collaboration piece yeah. was really focused on that conversation about what are the issues and what can we do about it. I think definitely one key piece that is often um, maybe not always the f- at the forefront of conversations around mental health, but um, diversifying uh, resources on our campus. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something this year we've tried to tackle. What does that mean? I, so, I'm going to yeah, ask you, that. what does that mean? Yeah, so essentially what that would mean is, um, you know, we all have mental health, but we, we don't all deal with our mental health in maybe the same sort of way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being in Canada, being a very multicultural uh, country and definitely having, you know, a very large Indigenous population here in Manitoba as well, it's extremely important to consider that that there are different ways of healing and with dealing with your mental health and trying to come up with um, ideas and resources um, that we can potentially have on our institutions to help, whether it be an international student or maybe an Indigenous student or um, whoever it might be, deal with their mental health. And so that's definitely, that's a conversation that we're hopefully going to expand on this year. Um, You know, inclusion, diversifying, um, having representation from those communities to hopefully help us with that conversation. Dara Halleck is one of our guests. She's a student at the University of Manitoba, former vice president of advocacy of the University of Manitoba Students' Union and co-executive director of the Breaking Barriers Summit. Our other guest, Brian Young, student of the University of Winnipeg and a national network representative for Jack.org. What is Jack.org? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, So Jack.org is the only national organization dedicated to training and empowering young leaders to revolutionize mental health in Canada. We're a national organization. We have over 180 chapters across Canada um, with over 2,500 young people in our network. Um, I'm super honored. I've been involved with the network for about three years now um, at my institution at the U of W. We have a chapter there. I became a talk speaker, another one of our uh, pillars that, that we use to talk to students. We do talks across high schools, across Canada. And um, <clears throat> our other program is the summit program, which is why it ties in beautifully with Breaking Barriers. Um, there's one national summit held every year in Toronto and a number of regional summits. And Breaking Barriers is a proud regional summit of Jack.org. And I get to be a national network rep for them as well, which is super awesome. Mackley McGarry with you, joined in studio by, well, they're friends of our program now. For the second <laughs> consecutive year, we're talking about the Breaking Barriers Summit, the first ever multi-university student-led conference on mental health in Manitoba was held last year. It makes its return later this month. Dara Halleck is event organizer along with, uh, organizer, pardon me, with uh, Brian Young. And, uh, you know, I mentioned this question before the break. Mm -hmm. With better resources for mental health of students, is there an opportunity to keep more kids in school, more young adults that might be inclined to just kind of quit 
because they cannot deal with their mental health issues. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think if if post-secondary um, education of any kind is something that that students are are hoping for and and not not everyone is, although you know we're both students so we obviously very much value education and and see the importance of it, but it, it's not for everyone. If it is um, a path that that somebody's choosing, I think absolutely the more we talk about the barriers that affect our mental health, um, the more it's going to encourage students to to continue on. I, I know definitely there have been times in my you know journey through university that I've also wanted to just you know lots of barriers and just give up and quit. And I think that that's a sentiment shared by many students. And and it's unfortunate because there's so much value um, and and so much learning to be done at university. Just you know obviously you know educational wise, but also internally you know. Um, and so I think the more we talk about those barriers, the easier it's going to be. To, for students to to stay in school or, or want to be there all the time, you know? Dara, what made you decide that <clears throat> mental health is something that you'd like to, to fight for, to champion? Well, I think um, while we're talking about the whole student perspective, I guess, I was someone who... You know, I, I came to university and I I really started to have a hard time just with my own sort of, I guess, expectations of what I thought I needed to do. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot mm. of pressure that a student can face. And, and it's not always, you know, necessarily specifically related to mental health, but, um, you know, there's financial pressure. There's, you yeah. know, you need to have a job or, you know, you need to have, you know, high grades. And it's that that sort of environment and what I was facing, uh, you know, I had a really hard time with. And I think um, then through my work uh, with the students union, I, I saw a lot of different students facing other barriers, whether it be cultural shock when they come here from a different country or really just socioeconomic barriers. Um, and I saw that, you know, those things have a negative impact on your mental health and not every student does know how to reach out. And mm -hmm. that stigma can be, it's just so prevalent on, on our campuses still and in our communities. And, um, you know, what can I do to hopefully help out other students so that they Absolutely. don't have to face such, you know, lonely or dark or hard times like I did. And, you know, luckily I made it through and, you know, I made, made it through my classes and I found a support network, but um, not every student has that. Well, yeah. I mean, there, there's still this thought by that many people have that mental wellness issues are kind of a, some could be a sham, that it's trendy. Absolutely. Somebody made yeah. a comment yeah. to me recently, oh, you know, there's so many people now talking on social media about how depressed they are. Yeah. And, you know, mm -hmm. it just seems like a farce. And I thought, are, really? Like that, that, that kind of thinking makes me sad. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's, this is such a loaded conversation <laughs> to have, but yeah. um you know, with more awareness being raised in our society, the more we're going to have people coming forward and sharing their story. And I think that that's, that's beautiful. You know, I think that we need to make more space for people to, to feel empowered to share their story and, and, and feel that nobody's going to judge them for, for telling, you know, where they come from and, and their personal life. With that said, we also, I think, have to keep in mind that there are differences between like clinical depression and feeling yes. depressed and clinical anxiety and feeling anxious. And, uh, you know, it's such a such a broad and large conversation, and, and that's something that that we obviously want to have at at the summit. Is it's talking about it's okay to share your story, and it's also okay to know what the difference is between feeling depressed and being depressed. You and know? the more we speak about that stuff, honestly, the less self diagnosis is going to go exactly. on, the less so exactly. self doubt. Because mm -hmm. if you're feeling that way, and you go to a doctor and someone, and hopefully the doctors are keeping up in terms yes. of being able to diagnose, and I know that's another gigantic issue, uh, the one that we probably don't have time to talk about today, but the more we do talk about it, the more mm -hmm. people are going to ask Absolutely. about it and they're going to get the real answers mm -hmm. and the real strategies mm -hmm. in dealing with this stuff. Uh, very proud of you two, if, I, if I'm allowed to say so, <laughs> for pulling That's this so off uh, second year in a row. Uh, you're genuine leaders in the community mm -hmm. and so congratulations to you for doing Thank this you. again. Thank you Thank so you. much. Yeah. Breaking Barriers Summit. .eventbrite.ca is the website. You can also find them on Facebook and on Instagram, Breaking Barrier Summit. Dara Halleck and Brian Young are, I guess, they are the event organizers. Brian, a student at the U of W. Dara, a student at the U of M. Thank you so much. And again, this is happening Saturday, February 17th, starting at 8.30 in the morning at the University mm -hmm. of Winnipeg. Which building, by the way, does it matter? Convocation Hall. Convocation yeah. Hall, <laughs> University of Winnipeg, Saturday, February 17th, 8.30. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks Thank you so much. 
for having us. That's all the time we have. Thanks to Behind the Glass, Jerry, for being our technical producer, for Tristan Field-Jones and for Shanalee Vidal as content producer. I'm Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling. Thank you for listening to 680 CJOB. (laughs) 